Oh, amen. Those guys went deep into the bag of trucks for that one. Is that a Gold City song? Yeah, it's an old one. I like that one. It's a good one. I haven't been preaching for 40 years, though. Preached my first sermon 30 years ago. I was 12 years old. <laughs> so, but I've been doing it ever since. First Peter tonight, First Peter chapter 1. Did you get notes out there? We needed some notes right up here. Do we have some notes available? Maybe, perhaps, a couple sets. Anybody else need notes? We need one, a couple over here. Andrew, you want to help him out on this side? A couple young ladies. First Peter chapter 1. Tonight we're going to do our best to cover four verses. Give you the track record so far. Uh, first time we covered one verse. And the second time we covered one verse. And the third time we branched out big. And goodness gracious, we were able to cover three verses. Tonight we're going to do our best to cover four verses. So this is huge, big stuff. First Peter chapter 1, verse number 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the period of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Tonight we're going to speak about the trial of your faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for your word. We thank you for this precious book of the Bible, the general epistle from Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and alive and, and working for us today, here in 2014. We thank you for each one who's faithful to be here for a Sunday evening service. Pray that you would give us uh, your words and that you would help us to apply them in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So here we find, once again, this book that is written to those people who are strangers, who are scattered abroad. They've been persecuted. And they're under the persecution of the Roman Emperor Nero, who not only has burned half of a city down and blamed it on them, but now he's taking them and using them, their bodies, as torches to light his garden. He is beheading them in the streets. He's sending them before wild animals. And Peter is writing them and saying, hey, time to look up, guys. These things are going great. And that's what verse 6 is. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. So he's been telling them about the salvation they have and how it's reserved in heaven for them and how precious it is and how they're kept by the power of God and how wonderful things are. He says, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though... Now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptation. Now, when we talk about temptation here, we're talking about a general concept of things that are a trial in the believer's life. And yeah, that is backed up by verse 7. The context here 
is not us falling into sin, though sometimes the temptation of sin is a trial in our lives. But it's talking about the test of our faith, the trying of our faith. And they were going through this for a season. And he wanted them to know that it was a short season compared to eternity. He's helped them to understand that the eternal state of heaven is not even worth being compared to the trials of the present day. And we saw that in our last get-together on this passage. So let's start into your notes tonight here from verse number 6. And here's what we say. We are able to greatly rejoice in the present because of the promise of future salvation. So we can rejoice in whatever is happening today in our lives because of the promise of what God has given to us. And I love that. I, sometimes we get so bogged down in today. We get so bogged down in what's going on in our nation and what's going on in the world and what's going on in the culture and our lives. Sometimes it just seems like we're in a, uh, this funnel that's taken us down. And uh, we, as Americans, boy, people live by the rise and fall of the stock market or uh, the rise and fall of their investments or uh, how many things they can accumulate. And uh, goodness gracious, this puts in a different context. Now, by the way, that doesn't relieve us of our duty as citizens. Even Tuesday, you need to go out and vote and uh, make sure that you're a good citizen as God has commanded you to be in his word. But the here and now, the season of manifold heaviness in your life, that's not the big picture. The big picture for the believer is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what it is. And that's what our eyes should be focused on in the present. When we start to feel discouraged, when we start to feel like uh, we can't take another step and we've lost all hope, we need to remember that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, His blood, His righteousness. That's from that song, but it's true. It's absolutely true. I love Isaiah 40, 31. Some of you probably, you're, maybe it's your life first, and maybe you have it up on a wall, or you keep it as a, as a bookmark in your Bible. And you know, it says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Do you know that happens in the present tense? shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. And that happens in the present tense, in the midst of trial. And I'm sure that there are people in this room tonight, probably almost everybody, who could stand up and testify of a trial in your life. A season that you went through that you felt like, is it ever going to end? And sometimes God puts us on that, allows us to be put on that desert island, and we're stuck in the meantime of our life. We're stuck in between here and there, and we don't really know where we're supposed to go. When I think of that, I think of Sister Connie Hayne. She has been stuck in the meantime for months and months now with this projectile on her foot. And keep praying for her. She's getting close to going back to the doctor on Tuesday, this Tuesday. Praise the Lord. Maybe the meantime will, will be changing here. But you know how that is it's in, sometimes in relationships? 
sometimes in our family life, sometimes at the job, sometimes in a circumstance, we feel like, goodness gracious, maybe God has left us there and we're kind of on our own. I think Joseph had to have had thoughts like this, the Old Testament Joseph. God had given him these dreams that he was going to be the ruler and that his brothers were going to bow down to him and his father was going to bow down and his mother before him. And then he's in prison because he was sold into slavery. And after he was sold into slavery, his boss's wife tried to seduce him and then she lied about it. And now he's in prison in a dungeon and God never comes back with another dream and God never shows up again and says, Joseph, here am I. Everything's going to be okay. And so Joseph was in one of these seasons that Peter's talking about here. And we have to rejoice in the present. Another thing I want you to see is the paradox of this verse. The paradox is given. God's children are able to be in a state of joy constantly, even in a season of great heaviness. You know who some of the most joyful believers seem to be? The ones who are going through the biggest trials? That's a paradox. That's something that the world cannot possibly understand. I have been at the deathbed of believers who are in great pain, and they got the biggest smile on their faces. And they're excited to see Christ, and they're praying with their family, and, and boy, there's just joy involved in that. There's joy in manifold temptations, in many temptations. And so that's a paradox that we find. Now we get to verse 7. Verse 7 is probably one of the greatest verses in Scripture that explains to us this idea of the trial of faith or this suffering. And in fact, this suffering is going to take, uh, in the book of 1 Peter, many different trails that we'll see. We have already looked at uh, the suffering that comes with our assured salvation there in verses 2 through 5. And then tonight we're talking about the, that there's a greater glory at Christ's appearing. And that's what verse 7 is about. Look at it again. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So you have to look at the, the term on this. You have to look at the time on this. The trial of your faith seems like it's happening now. And we always feel like, well, when is it going to stop? And when are we going to see Christ? And when is this glory and honor and power going to manifest itself? Now, the truth is, if we have the right outlook in life, that it's happening right now. If we get our eyes on gold that perishes, and we're looking to accumulate, and we're looking for the next thrill, or the next thing, or the next idea, then so often we miss out on what God's trying to teach us in the trial. When you talk to believers who seem to be radiant and joyful, and they've matured in the faith, you know where most of that maturity took place? In the valley. In the deepest valley. 
We don't usually learn a whole lot on the mountaintop. We don't usually learn a, a lot when everything's going great. We learn from the valleys. We learn from the discouragements. We learn from those times where we had no other alternative but to go to God and say, God, I need help. And even though God's there on the mountaintop, sometimes we don't go to him. Sometimes we begin to feel like, boy, I'm successful. I'm really good at this. Instead of living by faith. And so this is the trial of your faith. When I think the trial of faith, I always think of Job. Now, there's no better example in Scripture. He has everything in his life pulled out from under him. Uh, the rug is yanked out from under him. And he says, the Lord gave, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you read this, going, Job, wait, hold up here. Do you realize what's happened? Now, his wife was there to fill him in on this. Job, do you realize what's happened here? All of our children have been killed in a weather accident. All the sheep are gone. All the camels are gone. All the donkeys are gone. Everything's gone. And Job said, isn't God good? Now, when people are like that, doesn't it make you just, <clears throat> right? When people are that joyful, it's like, can't you be sad for a day? Right? We, we used to go to church with a guy, and every time you asked him, um, how are you doing? He would always, every time, he would say, better than I deserve. Like, dude, get a new line. And, but then one day I stopped and thought, you know what? He's right. He's doing better than he deserves. And, uh, and we sometimes, we get, we try to, people love their own misery. Have you found that? They like to exploit their misery. They like to let everybody know how miserable they are. And how hard their life is. And goodness gracious, we throw pity parties so often instead of praise parties. When good things happen, we don't get everybody together enough and say, God's good. He did something mighty here. He did something wonderful. But when there's a pity party, watch out. Here she comes. Here he comes. And it's about to rain down on you. So the trial of your faith has different angles that we can look at. And here's what we say in your notes. Unbelievers find it difficult to understand that the trial of a believer's faith can be more precious than gold. Not only unbelievers, but backslidden believers. See, people who don't have the right mindset toward God, who don't have the right worldview toward God, there's no way they can understand how precious that trial can be. But you know, you can look back to that trial in your life and just thinking about it makes you start to cry because it's so precious. Why was it precious? Because God was there. It's precious because God walked with you. And you remember sometimes those moments in time. They were the most horrific moments you've ever had and yet, when you think about them, they're precious to you. And unbelievers, they don't get that. They, they're trying to, and Satan does this. He'll say, you must not have a very good God. 
Your God must not be looking out for you. Right? That's the lie he tried to tell Adam and Eve. God's trying to keep the best from you. God doesn't have good intentions for your life. And we buy into that lie again and again. And unbelievers who don't have a knowledge of God, who are natural men, all they can see is the here and now. And so they don't understand how we could find these things more precious than gold. Look at this next one in your notes, and then we'll turn to Romans 8. When we weigh our earthly cares against the glory of his appearing, there is no comparison. When we weigh our earthly cares against the glory of his appearing, there's no comparison. Romans 8 is a tremendous verse, or a tremendous chapter, in helping us to understand that our condemnation has been covered. Our weakness has been covered. <clears throat> the things that we are not able to do have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 8, verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Isn't that a great verse? First of all, because it says, I reckon. That's just, just, I reckon, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, they're not even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Look at this next verse. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. You know what that's saying? The entire earth, every part of God's creation is waiting for us to be redeemed, to have the end of our salvation, for Jesus to return. Everything on earth is crying out. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And it goes on to talk about how the whole creation groans and travails and pain together, waiting for Jesus Christ and his appearing. And that's what the trial of our faith is grounded in. It's grounded in the glory and honor of God. You read passages like in John. John chapter 9, I think it is. They bring a man to Jesus who was born blind. Remember this? And his disciples said to Jesus, Who sinned? Was it this guy or was it his parents? And Jesus said, it's neither one. It's so that the glory of God can be revealed in him. And they're scratching their heads. What does, what does that even mean? Somebody had to send for that guy to be born blind. And Jesus said, nope. It's so that I can receive glory and honor to my father. You know, in your life, there are times where you say, well, why did this happen? 
Who caused this to happen? Whose sin made this happen? You know, the trial of your faith says that it's happening so that God can be glorified. Remember the disciples? As they go out on the water, and there's a storm, and they're being tossed by the waves, and it's the middle of the night, and they're thinking, what did we do? What did we do wrong? And here Jesus comes walking on the water to them. They're going up with the waves and down with the waves. And the wind's blowing. And they look out, it's a spirit. They said, children, it is I. It's me, I'm here. Their master, save us, we perish. Peter says, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter steps out of the boat into the raging sea and begins to walk. Why? Because the glory of God was being revealed. The storm that they were a part of was all for God's glory. Now, take that sentence and apply it to your life, and it's so hard. When you say this sentence about your life, the storm I'm going through right now is for God's glory. Well, that's a tough sentence. That is a faith-filled sentence. You have to have some deep faith in your Savior to say that sentence. And so it's all for the glory of his appearing. Now we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we go to verse 8. Look what it says. Whom having not seen, ye love. Whom having not seen, ye love. You know, that's what faith is. Faith, it tells us right away in Hebrews, what is faith? The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. No man has seen God at any time. We can look at the evidence, but we've never seen him. And so we love him. But we don't love him because of us. We love him because of him. In fact, 1 John says we love him because he first loved us. And so, in whom having not seen, you love. Now look at this next phrase. In whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice. And so, let's say in your notes, the eyes of faith reveal to us the verified presence and love of Jesus Christ in our lives. Jesus says to his disciples who are there at the time, and they actually see him, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. And we kind of think, okay, well, that's the disciples, and they could see him, and how are we supposed to love him, though we've never seen him? And yet, if you talk to believers who are in love with God, they say, I love him more than anything. In fact, that's supposed to be our highest priority as believers. 
is to love and worship God. Greater than anything, greater than our family, greater than our friendships, greater than our workplace, greater than our church. We are to love him, yet we haven't seen him. And I want you to notice something that helps us bring this into perspective. Look over a few pages to your right, the first John chapter one. And I love first John written by John the Beloved through the Holy Spirit. Because here's a guy who had a relationship like no other human being did to Jesus Christ. And this entire book of 1 John is about love. This is a great book to memorize if you're ever looking for a book to memorize in your life. And here's what he says. And this is what blows, this is what blows you away. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. So he's talking about real life experience, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Remember, Jesus said, put your finger to the print of the nails. Touch my hands and my feet. It is I. Be not afraid. And so John says, we, we saw him. Now look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that... Your joy may be full. Now, I want you to remember that Peter and John are writing this decades after Jesus has ascended. In fact, John is writing this epistle as an old man. Most Bible scholars think he was in his 90s when he wrote this. And yet he says, our joy is unspeakable. Now, what kind of joy was it? What kind of relationship was it? Jesus wasn't there anymore. He'd been off the earth for 65 years. 55, 65 years at this point. And yet, John says, we have fellowship. Our joy is in him. You know what it was? It was the joy of faith. It was through the eyes of faith. And so, the next thing in your notes we say is this. The disciples who had walked with Jesus on the earth presently loved him with joy unspeakable or with unspeakable joy though he was unseen. So they didn't see him and yet they loved him more than they ever had because they realized how precious he really is. While he was on the earth they took it for granted. Now they probably didn't want to but they did. Because not one of those disciples had a real understanding of who he was as they walked around each day. And when he rose from the tomb, they were blown away. When he ascended into heaven, they stood there gazing like they just had a lobotomy. And the angel said, what are you guys doing? Why are you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. And they went out and turned the world upside down. These men turned the world upside down 
based on faith that Jesus was really God because of his resurrection. And it's the same faith that we have today. And so that's what verse 8 is in 1 Peter 1. Whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Here's another thing we say in your notes. Christian joy is misunderstood. Misunderstood by those that equate it with temporal happiness. Here's why. Joy is not self-seeking or self-sufficient. And that's where most people get thrown off. How do you say you have joy when your circumstances are bad? How do you have joy when you don't have everything you want in life? Well, because joy is not self-seeking. Joy is when I seek His glory. And all the glory and all the honor and all the praise, we already read it, is in Him and His appearing. And when that's what I seek in my life, I have joy. And you know, joy is not self-sufficient. Now, happiness, we sometimes seek for it. And we say, boy, I've got to make myself happy. Nobody else will make me happy. Sometimes people are looking for people to make him happy. The woman at the well had already been married to five husbands, and now she had a man who wasn't her husband. And what was she looking for? Somebody who could make her happy. Somebody who could meet her expectations. She was the first Elizabeth Taylor. I'm going to marry him, and then I'm going to marry him, and then I'm going to marry him, and finally I'm going to meet Mr. Wright. And then I'm going to have happiness. You know, happiness doesn't come from earthly relationships. Happiness is a byproduct of joy. And joy is a byproduct of faith. And so when we have the right kind of faith, then we have unspeakable joy. And that joy is not seeking anything for us. It's seeking for Him. And so we find our sufficiency in Christ. Now, verse number 9 couple things from it will be done. Look what it says. Receiving the end of your faith. Okay, so there's a beginning of your faith. That's the moment when you trusted Christ as your Savior. But now it says receiving the end of your faith. Even the salvation of your souls. So you have to understand what salvation is here or what sanctification is. Yeah, the moment you trusted Christ, you were assured of eternal life. In fact, God says that He sent the Holy Spirit to indwell you as an earnest of the promised possession. And now the end of your salvation, that's when the deal is totally done. That's when everything is complete. And that's what Peter's been leading up to in these first eight or nine verses. And so we say in your notes, we can currently rejoice in sure assurance of salvation. And boy, that's, that's a thought that I hope you'll take with you tonight and throughout your life is this. I can rejoice today because of my promised home in heaven. I can rejoice today because Jesus is my Savior. 
My rejoicing doesn't have anything to do with my circumstances. My rejoicing has nothing to do with my temptations. My rejoicing has to do with Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of salvation. That's what my rejoicing is in. And if we get stuck in the rat race of life and we don't see any joy, and it's because we get our eyes on the wrong thing. In Hebrews 12, where it says, he's the author and finisher of our salvation, it says, looking unto Jesus, right before the, looking unto Jesus. We've got to get our eyes off of the weights and the sins that beset us and look to Jesus because he's the author and finisher of salvation. So the end of your faith, we say this in your notes, the last thing. The end of salvation is precious to the believer for many reasons. One is that we will be delivered from all temptation. Though we have already been delivered from wrath. Okay, the moment you trusted Christ, you were delivered from eternal wrath. The moment you trusted Christ, you were delivered from condemnation. Now there is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 um, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me shall not be condemned. And his condemnation's gone. But those who believe not are condemned already. And, and so when we believe, the moment we believe, the beginning of salvation, wrath is set aside. Condemnation is set aside. But temptation is still going. Read Romans 6 and 7, where the Apostle Paul said, Oh, I'm tired of this temptation stuff. I'm tired of this vile body. I'm tired of not doing the things I want to do, and I'm sick of doing the things that I wish I hadn't done. And he's got this dilemma, but thanks be unto God, which gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And the final victory is that we are delivered from temptation. Wouldn't it be nice to never have another temptation? And not, a, not one. I want to talk about temptation. Once again, it's general. Temptation to sin, trials, tests, everything gone. No more tests. Now, that, you know, kids, when they go to school, that's their dream. It's to get out of school so there's no more tests. And they don't realize that commencement means beginning. Commencement is the beginning of tests. It's the beginning of real life. Life is a little bit harder than the SAT. Life is a little bit harder than the biology test. Real life is a constant test. And yet God gives us this promise that says we're going to receive the end of our faith, even the salvation of our souls. And so it's a great promise, and that's the trial of your faith. Well, I have one more announcement, then uh, we'll stand and be dismissed in prayer. Brother Pedro Pastinas is uh, next couple Saturdays, he's going to be having a moving sale. And uh, Pedro and Mel are, are looking at some different options for after Christmas here. And uh, ask him about that, if, if there's something you could do to help him. Uh, he's just trying to responsibly get rid of some possessions and things to uh, help him in the pursuit of whatever God's will would be for his life. 
And uh, so if, those of you who love Brother Pedro, I, I know you'll want to ask him about uh, this Saturday and the, the next Saturday to come, all right? Well, let's stand, and we'll be dismissed in a closing word. We'll all go home and eat some French toast. No French toast? Dry toast. Pork roast? Rhymes with dry toast. This is pretty good. That'll work. Pork roast on dry toast. I like that. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that we could be here. Thank you for the promises of your word that give us joy unspeakable and full of glory in the present. We don't have to wait till you come to have joy. We have read the back of the book and we know that we win. God is on the throne and there's nothing that can take you off the throne. And so I pray that we would live every day with that joy, earnest, visible joy to those around us that Jesus Christ is our Savior and that we will spend all eternity with you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.